0: You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement materials. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared history should be held in common and accessible to all. I'm Elena Levy, and in this episode, we're looking at language diversity in New York City. With an estimate of up to 800 languages spoken by at least one person in the metropolitan area, New York City is the most linguistically diverse city in the world, as well as in our known history. In this episode, we'll talk to folks whose work supports the speakers of some of these minority languages and discuss the importance of language as a source of cultural empowerment and as a tool for community organizing. To start, let's head to Girard Avenue in the Bronx just a few blocks away from Yankee Stadium, where on July 25th, 2014, a group of community organizers, activists, and educators launched Kichwa Hatari, the very first Kichwa radio program in the U.S.
1: It was really pointing at the language as this marker of, of a community and what the language can offer as a tool to truly to really mobilize a community and for a, a community to empower itself.
0: That's Charlie Uruchima, one of the founders of Kichwa Hatari. Quichua is one of the variants of the language Quechua, which originated from the Incas and today is spoken throughout the Andean region of Peru, Bolivia, and Ecuador. There are estimates of eight to 10,000 Kichwa speakers living in the New York City tri-state area alone, although this number is likely not accurate since indigenous languages are often not recognized in census or surveys.
1: And it's difficult when in your home country, let's say Ecuador, your language isn't even totally acknowledged. But I think also that stigma that comes from that country follows you here. Um, so I think for many reasons, people also don't identify as quicho speakers as directly as probably they should. And it's been difficult for that reason to calculate or really f- find an exact count how many Quicho speakers there are.
0: I asked Charlie about the collective's work to support the quechua speaking community by teaching and using the language to talk about culture and people's experiences in New York. What do you find are some of the challenges that the quechua speaking community is faced with in New York City?
1: I think some of the challenges are pretty much the reason why we even thought about creating this space that's not a radio program. The challenges are in being acknowledged as a language and a community being acknowledged as different as being a community of its own that doesn't fit into like your normal latino or even ecuadorian frame and i think you can see this definitely when uh, institutions call people like me or my group for interpretation services they need interpreters in the court for a key speaker with a dui they need somebody they need interpreter in the hospitals to for a doctor to be able to communicate to a patient about their well-being, And then even in schools, we were invited to speak to the Kichwa community because they weren't getting involved and in their students' lives, students were failing, the parents were isolating themselves. Even though like the PTA committee was made up of all Spanish speakers, they couldn't communicate with these parents. There was something there that they couldn't understand and, and they needed somebody to, to facilitate communication. So I think these institutional barriers really have a big consequence uh, socially to the community. And I think what we're doing is acknowledging that.
0: Are there specific communities in New York City where, where you find that people are living?
1: Um, yeah, I've, I do find that a lot of the, the Kichwa population is concentrated in the outer boroughs, like the Bronx, for example. I mean, that's why the radio program is in the Bronx. I think what brings a lot of Kichwa Quechua communities now is the culture of migration, pretty much, from these communities. I think what you had in the 90s was a big uh, wave of migration into the United States, particularly New York, of adults, of working people. And I think what you have now is a lot of migration of young people. Um, a lot of times who pretty much are are trying to reunite with their family or don't really see staying in their home communities as an option because their home communities are are scarce as it is of opportunity, of people in general. What you see, a lot lot of Kichos speakers who live here who've probably never even seen a city before coming to New York City, which is crazy because they're coming from their own rural communities and basically they go to Coyotero, who's probably their neighbor, and he basically facilitates that passage from their home rural town into New York City. Yukanchipa Kauseimantha, Yukanchipa Kichwa Shimi rimanamanta, Mantan, Mayakta Pipish Mana Pingashpa, Mana Manchashpa, Rimashpa Hatinami Kanchi.
0: Mostiya
1: Sun. Taitakuna yami Kuitsakuna, Tukuikuna, Shamunchi, Kichua Hatari programawa, Kuyashpa Kati Shunchi, Shinashpaka, Kichwashun,
0: Kichwahatari, Kanha. Kichua Hatari was founded by Charlie Uruchima, Fabiano Buenalda, and Segundo Angamarca. The program airs every Friday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the station Radio El Tambo.
1: The great thing about our group, we are all, we're all pretty different. I mean, I'm born in New York City, studied Quechua here. I'm a heritage speaker, basically. Segundo is from Cañar, like a southern region in Ecuador. Who really didn't grow up uh, acknowledging Quechua as, as something important in his, in his life and not as much as he does now. His interests are more around, like, the media communication aspect of this and, like, what impact does, like, the media have. And our other host, Fabian, Fabian Buenala, he actually used to be one of, like, the movement leaders in one of the biggest indigenous uprisings in Latin America, based in Ecuador, and and he was a teacher and community organizer. He would actually go to smaller communities for the purpose of bringing independent intercultural bilingual schools in their communities and really trying to raise awareness around Quechua and... And the the need for these communities to preserve their languages and cultures. We actually started the program and it wasn't until like a couple months later where we realized like the actual impact this had not only inside the community but outside. Actually the the New York Times was there when we aired the first program and it made I think the community feel good about themselves and that it wasn't only the community that started to get to know about the radio program but it was a lot of people who started to identify as allies or people who wanted to support in some way or people who are just curious. In general, I think our, our larger audience are people who already follow this radio station, for example, maybe haven't approached issues around language who really haven't thought about the repercussions of not speaking your language once in the United States.
0: What kind of people do you bring on as guests on the program?
1: It varies so much. I think in the first couple of years, we were pretty much on a weekly basis hosting two or three guests every episode. And it wasn't really, it's not always expected. Like, we don't, we, we've, we plan a lot of the shows, but most of the time, like, people just walk in. Uh, I have friends or family of my colleagues or other people from the community, and they say, like, oh, like, I heard you have a Kichiri program. Can I go visit? I mean, it, it's cool because people just, like, they uh, once they come, they feel at home, and they feel like they can always just come in and out. We've had, um, for example, people from the mayor's office in New York talk about know your rights over the radio. And in the situation we are today in this country, I think it's even more important. And us acknowledging the fact that our community shouldn't be uh, thought about in this one frame, shouldn't be like compartmentalized as just a community whose interests should fall on preserving a language or preserving an identity or culture because there are also needs that are attached to it. And it's very real. Um, the fact that most of the community I think that we're reaching out to are undocumented. So there's real fear there. So how do we address this? One thing we did try was we had done a Quichua lesson segment. That was done by Fabian Buenala. He had created like a curriculum and we would have like a 15 segment every week where he'd teach, like, basic quichua over the radio. And we had a guest host, but well, we have a guest host, who would come and basically play the role of a student because he's actually learning quichua. So it was really interesting, like, seeing that dynamic play out in the radio and having people listen to the questions that Renzo had and them themselves asking questions. And we would actually, like, purposely make a point out of telling people beforehand, go get your kids, you know, we're going to teach some Quechua right now, like, practice with them at home.
0: Do you consider yourself a language activist?
1: I guess I could consider myself an activist, but it's something that uh, I've invested in the in the community and I've worked with the community. It's not something that I even asked to do really. It's a process that i'm I'm very invested in where we're really acknowledging what we're doing with the language and and we're activating the language. And I think that's probably what language activism is. It's It's activating a language where it's not relegated to a certain space or a certain time. We're bringing it to the forefront, we're saying, like here's our language, why document it? You know, let's put it into use. um let's activate it, let's create new spaces like like why not? you know
0: on your website, you had a a segment that talks about the like how complicated it is to call a language endangered. What are some of the complications that arise, and who defines what makes a language endangered
1: I think. Typically, UNESCO uh, determines wh- what's an endangered language or not. In one sense, acknowledging catch as, as an endangered language is helpful to many people, even like myself when I first got into this, And in acknowledging that there's a decline in people speaking it and uh, we need to do something about it. So it, it really brings a sense of urgency to a lot of people. Although I do think when you relegate language to being solely endangered, there are people that take that different ways. I think when you're just focusing on the linguistic side, you're doing a lot to document and doing a lot to save the language, but you're not really doing a lot to save the people. You're not really investing in a process that involves a lot of people and involves a lot of social realities of these people. Considering Quechua an endangered language brings us risk of only worrying about the language itself and not the people. And what we're doing, for example, with Kichwa Hatari is we're activating people first because it the language won't rescue itself. We have to rely on people to rescue the language. <laughs>
0: In the next segment of this episode, I'll speak with Ross Perlin, writer, linguist, and assistant director of the Endangered Language Alliance. They work with immigrant and refugee populations in New York City to help maintain their languages. I asked Ross to help us contextualize the term endangered language, what defines a language as endangered, as well as the factors that contribute to language loss.
2: People speak of as many as half of the world's languages being endangered, if not more, and usually it's talked about in terms of two major criteria one is the number of speakers which is really hard to gauge and what a speaker is. I mean, each term can be interrogated, and it's a good thing. It just takes a long time and involves a lot of issues. And the number of speakers and the intergenerational transmission, so whether a language is being passed on to children, whether it's being learned by the next generation. And something like half the world's languages at this point have, as best we gather, fewer than 10,000 speakers. And I think it's fair to say, given the current linguistic landscape, that a language with fewer than 10,000 speakers is very rarely safe today, given the spread of dominant languages. Speakers of endangered languages are among the most marginalized people in the world. They tend to be from, you know, what, what has been called the fourth world. They are minorities within, or sometimes kind of doubly or triply embedded minorities within countries which themselves are at the bottom of the kind of global hierarchy of nations peoples marginalized by the spread of capitalism, the spread of nationalism, imperialism, people living in places like the Himalayas, the Amazon, Papua New Guinea, people that have been you know, pushed to the margins over the years and have had their lands taken from them. And for many of them, the demand that they continue speaking their language or revitalize their language or keep up their language is a, it's a demand for autonomy and it's a demand to survive. There is a growing body of evidence showing that indigenous peoples that are able to maintain their language, keep their language, develop their language, are better equipped, more resilient in the face of the emergencies that they're facing. The pride and the the identity and the rootedness and, and continuity that can come from a language are very powerful things.
0: What are some of the reasons you find people have moved to New York of these language speakers?
2: Yeah, there are all kinds of interesting reasons why people come to to New York. I think, you know, New York obviously it's been a a great multicultural capital since its founding. You know, there were something like 18 languages that were noted as being here within a few years of the kind of founding of New Amsterdam. Not to mention Lenape, the original language of New York, of which there are still a few speakers and several revivalists as well. The reasons have varied over the years, and of course, the places people have come from have varied over the years. And, you know, it often starts out as people fleeing persecution, war, conflict. You look at the the worst years of Duvalier's dictatorship in Haiti, and you see Haitian migration to Brooklyn happening. You look at pogroms in Eastern Europe, and you see large numbers of Eastern European Jews. You see great years of poverty descending on Sicily or in Ireland, and then you see those great migrations happening. There are also more contingent factors, and then ultimately, you know, migrations gain momentum of their own, and it's people pull family members over, and people, you know, communities and enclaves form, and all sorts of factors come into play. But yeah, in many cases, it's people fleeing tragedy and dispossession and poverty and having a chance to change that.
0: Are there any laws in place to protect languages?
2: There is a small number, and you know, they usually come about because some community has kind of rallied itself and organized itself enough to make that kind of demand. You know, There are also laws in the other direction, like in Turkey, where for a long time speaking Kurdish, at least Kurmanji, the main Kurdish language, if not other Kurdish languages, there were actually strictures in the law about not doing that. So, you know, law has been used as a tool to suppress minority languages as well. In the US there is a, a modest amount of funding. The most significant that I'm aware of is the Esther Martinez Act for Native Languages, which has been around for a little while and provides a small amount of funding from the federal government to tribes working on their languages, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to the needs and then also the the responsibility of the US to tribal nations given especially the history of the residential schools in stamping out native languages, among other things. And those residential schools were government-created.
0: How do you see the role of books and literature and radio and newspapers, music, play a role in this kind of work?
2: So cultural forms that that highlight the language, that bring out the language, that are connected to the language, you know, especially things like music, clothing, food, I mean... These things are very significant in terms of showing people, especially showing people who themselves are not speakers. Maybe that they they might be the children or grandchildren of speakers, or they might be just interested outsiders, but that's something that they can kind of more easily relate to. It's tricky because it's very tricky to compete with big, well-funded cultures, English-speaking cultures, Chinese-speaking, Spanish-speaking, that can produce very flashy, beautiful forms that are backed by, you know, millions or hundreds of billions of dollars. You know, the cultural power of Hollywood is hard to equal when you're a small community of a few hundred speakers trying to just make, like, a video of an elder telling a story. And then for the kids, then, like... How do you get them to watch the the elder versus the Hollywood thing when there's this kind of imbalance?
0: The Endangered Language Alliance works primarily on endangered languages spoken by individuals and communities in the New York area.
2: We've been working for years on a language called Garifuna, which has a very significant community in New York, but people are often not aware of it. It's an Afro-Caribbean language that is spoken by the the descendants of escaped slaves who originally escaped onto the island of St. Vincent, intermarried with local indigenous Caribbean Arawakan people, formed totally unique hybrid culture. The language is mostly an Arawakan language, and it's really by far the best example the last best surviving example of what an indigenous Caribbean language sounded like before you know the massive genocide that unfolded across the Caribbean. And those people then were forced off St. Vincent, moved to what's now Honduras, Belize on the Caribbean coast of Central America, then later came in significant numbers to Brooklyn and the Bronx. It's a fascinating language linguistically, it's a it's a dynamic, incredible, diasporic community that, you know, has no sort of official kind of government behind it but we've you know we've done what we can to um, to support music education in the language revitalization work there are classes offered at a Griffin community house in the Bronx and to you know to document musical genres and um, you know and, and great speakers who are here in New York Another example of, of the work we've done is uh, on a variety of Himalayan languages. The Himalayas is, you know, one of the great linguistic hotspots of the world. And um, speakers of a variety of Himalayan languages have moved to New York and recently kind of constituted a whole microcosm of the Himalayas here. One example is a language called Mustangi, sometimes also called Loke. And um, we've been recording oral histories in, in that language. There are now almost entire villages of, of people from uh, from Mustang in northern Nepal have have moved to New York and constituted a whole new community here. We hope that recording this language and writing about this language and hosting events where Mustangi singers can be on stage and valorizing language in ways that it hasn't been, that um, that will play a role in in its maintenance.
0: For the last seven years, the Endangered Language Alliance has been mapping different language communities across the city. So far, they have completed a language map of Queens, which was incorporated into a book called Nonstop Metropolis, a New York City Atlas, and was part of an exhibition at the Queens Museum in 2016.
2: We're attempting to map the languages of New York, at least in a kind of a storytelling way, so that people can get a sense of the linguistic diversity of the city and really change the way they see the city. So we're trying to produce a print and digital map of that kind, and uh, we hope reaches even people who've never heard of most of the languages that their neighbors speak, and opens people's ears to the city.
0: Language activism work is people-powered. As Charlie mentioned before, languages won't rescue themselves. We have to rely on people to rescue languages. To learn more about Kichwa Hatari and the Endangered Language Alliance, check out our show notes. There, you'll find links to these organizations' websites, related articles, and information about how you can tune in to the radio program and see the language map of Queens. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteered-powered. If you like what you heard today, consider making a donation to help keep the archive up and running just go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening.